0: Good evening, everybody. Um, a very warm welcome to the LSE. It's great to see so many people. Thanks for coming tonight. My name is Marijke Schomeres. I lead a research project here in the LSE, which is called the Justice and Security Research Project. And we, my, much of my own research work has been in some of the world's very difficult conflict zones, where it's particularly important to look at what happens to small arms and how they influence people's everyday lives. And And something that very often happens is when you go and do research in these very difficult places where small arms are a a fact of everyday life and they cause a lot of bloodshed and violence and and sorrow, quite often people come up to you and very angrily ask you as a researcher, saying, "We, we don't understand one thing. Where do all these weapons come from and why is nobody making this stop? Why does it keep continuing? And I think tonight we have a very unique opportunity to actually uh, get at least a partial answer to this very important question, why is nobody making this stop? So um, before we start, I want to do a bit of logistics. Um, there's a Twitter hashtag for this event, which is LSE Arms. We will have Andrew Feinstein speak um, for a certain amount of time. We will see how long he will speak, but there will be ample time for our questions later on, so please... Do save your questions. We will have some roving microphones um, to hear from you. This event is also being recorded, and we will aim to make this recording available as a podcast on the LSE events website. Um, this is taken for granted that nothing goes wrong technically, which sometimes it does, but maybe, <laughs> maybe tonight we'll save. We, we hope so. <clears throat> I'm in, I'm in two minds, actually, about having Andrew Feinstein here with us uh, today, because he's a fantastic speaker and a very compelling writer and an extraordinary researcher, but he also has a really depressing story to tell, and I've, I've heard him speak before, and there are sometimes moments when he, when he talks where you can see the audience go basically numb with despair and you know silence descends on the audience, because some of the things that he talks about are really just so um, depressing and extraordinary. Because Andrew Feinstein has specialized, really, in pulling back the curtain on, on some rather uncomfortable issues and on really, I think, in, in reading his works, really drilling down some of the great issues of society and linking them to very individual human behavior, which quite possibly is the most depressing aspect of this. His best-selling memoir, After the Party, a personal and political journey inside the African National Congress, tells the inside experience of being not only a member of the ANC but also a member of parliament in in South Africa, and is at the same time a searing indictment of the ANC and uh, the great scandals of corruption that he exposed. It's not without coincidence that he is a founding member of Corruption Watch, which is an NGO, and you can guess what they do from the name. He writes regularly for the world's major news outlets and he provides analysis in very, very prominent places on some of the issues that he'll be talking about tonight, for example, in the recent Cypri yearbook. And when he finds time to do all of this, I do not know, since the production of this tome here that he will talk about um, tonight Must have taken years and has taken years of very very difficult research and and because let's face it when researching the global arms trade It's not exactly a situation where you walk into the room and you're uh, presented with a neat open access data set that is ready for you to investigate and interrogate but actually The topic is much more complicated than just getting to this very difficult to find information There's actually also a really Unexpected, maybe obstacle and then getting the story out and getting people to listen to what he's been finding, to, what he's been finding out in, in his research. And a recent example from this, which I find quite poignant, is that Andrew tried to place a story which um, called the recent scandal surrounding the Ministry of Defense in this country and the, the former Secretary of Defense, Liam Fox, the name, by the name that it really, um, really deserved, which is corruption um, and not a sort of gentlemanly misdemeanor as if, as what it was often portrayed. And very interestingly, none of the national papers had any interest whatsoever in uh, t- in taking this article on board. So we are lucky to have Andrew Feinstein here with us today. Uh, it's two days before the, the book is officially released. It's his first public appearance to talk about this book. And the book is, of course, The Shadow World Inside the Global Armstrait, the tome that I've just mentioned, the book that I'll just read you from the back page because it's always insightful. Archbishop Desmond Tutu says, This book is essential reading for anyone who cares about justice, transparency, and accountability in both the public and the private spheres, and for anyone who believes that it is more important to invest in saving lives than in the machinery of death. So, if you thought um, Andrew does a tough job by trying to elicit very difficult information from dodgy arms dealers, I can tell you tonight he has upped his game one more, and for the first time ever, will use PowerPoint in his presentation. (laughs) So, Andrew, thank you very much for your work on this subject, and thanks for being with us tonight.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Mareka. Besides the fact that it's the first time I am ever using PowerPoint for a presentation, I also, as as some of you know, have a complete aversion to speaking behind lecterns. um, As a consequence of, on one of my first ever engagements as a new ANC MP, having to give a very short speech um, at the Atlanta International Airport, where we had just landed, from within a lectern that was an illuminated Coke can. (laughs) <laughs> and when I asked the colleague, um, Tokyo Sekhwala, who's now South Africa's Minister of Human Settlements, whether the speech was okay after giving it, he said to me, the speech was fine. It's a shame that all we could see was a very sweaty, bald head sticking out of a Coke can. <laughs> so, so hopefully nothing will go wrong on either front. The first thing I have to do is find the button. <laughs> uh, I found it. Success. Thank you very much, Maria, for that introduction, and thank you to the LSE for hosting this lecture, and to a troop of the most extraordinary people who, since I started communicating with them in a state of extreme desperation yesterday about this PowerPoint presentation, have been so efficient and so calm about it. Um, It's been an absolute delight, so thank you very much to them, and of course to my publisher, Hamish Hamilton Penguin, who have been involved in arranging this event, and who have been so engaged and passionate about this book. I'm also really delighted that there are so many people here this evening who have played a role in the genesis of The Shadow World. Paul Holden and Barnaby Pace, um, my two researchers, without whom, frankly, the book wouldn't exist. Anne Felton and the people from the Campaign Against the Arms Trade, who've been extremely supportive of my work since I arrived in the UK almost a decade ago now and also within a few months of arriving they bought me a single share in BAE systems (laughs) so that I could attend the AGM and have um, what I suppose we could describe as interesting conversations with with the various chairmen of the company over the years. Also, those people from Transparency International who who work on the arms trade, who do some very important work on the arms trade, and the Open Society Institute, who supported my work for 18 months um, through an international fellowship. Brian Wood from Amnesty International, who heads their global arms trade unit, who has really devoted his career to exposing and addressing the impact of the arms trade and Joe Rober whose work on the structure of the trade has been pivotal to my thinking and to the book. Joe and another great researcher and writer, Nick Gilby, have over many years struggled to get their books published primarily for legal reasons. I sincerely hope that the publication of The Shadow World will make it easier for them and others to publish on this controversial and important subject. Finally, There are a number of whistleblowers and investigators with us today. While I won't mention their names, it is important to note that without them we would know even less about this business that counts its profits in billions and its costs in human lives. Global military expenditure is estimated to have totaled $1.6 trillion in 2010 that is $235 for every person on the planet by extremely conservative estimates. Today the United States spends almost a trillion dollars a year on national security with a defense budget of over $703 billion. The trade in conventional arms, both big and small, is worth about $60 billion a year. This expenditure has profound impacts on the world from the enabling, fueling, and perpetuation of conflict, to the corrosion of democracy in both buying and selling countries, and the massive opportunity costs in terms of socioeconomic development in emerging economies, and the prosperity and well-being of ordinary taxpayers in more developed economies. Arms deals stretch across a continuum of legality and ethics, from the official or formal trade to the grey and black markets, what I refer to as the shadow world. The grey market alludes to deals conducted through legal channels, but undertaken covertly. They're often utilized by governments to impact foreign policy illicitly. Black market deals are illegal in both conception and execution. Both black and grey deals frequently contravene arms embargoes, national and multilateral laws, agreements and regulations. As far as we can establish, and it was extremely difficult to do, of the around 502 violations of UN arms embargoes, there is only one instance where this has led to legal accountability of any sort. And this one case resulted in an acquittal. In practice, the boundaries between these three markets are fuzzy and vague. They are often intertwined and dependent on each other. With bribery and corruption de rigueur, there are very few arms transactions that do not involve illegality, most often through middlemen or agents. There are many arms dealers and agents who provide services to large defense companies and governments while continuing to operate in the black and grey markets. In a remarkable piece of work, Joe Rober calculated that the trade in weapons accounts for almost 40% of all corruption in all global trade. And this on sales of around $60 billion a year, not a huge amount. 40% of all corruption. The past year has seen a number of long-running corruption investigations coming to a head, involving, amongst others, the appeal in the well-known Angola Gates scandal, deals involving the French state arms company, DCNS, and the British-listed company, BAE Systems. Other investigations have been launched during this period are being considered against, amongst others, Germany's Ferrestal, and Sweden's Saab. The length of time it has taken to initiate or conclude these investigations, the often unsatisfactory outcomes, the low, if any, punitive costs to the companies involved, and the reality that countless cases are never even investigated raises serious questions about the enforcement of the law in relation to the trade in weapons and military materiel. But why is this trade so susceptible to corruption? Joe Rober's work argues compellingly that the arms trade is hardwired for corruption. The very structure of the trade explains the prevalence and nature of the corruption that characterizes it. Simply put, in the formal trade, you have contracts worth millions, if not billions of dollars being decided on by an incredibly small number of people in the buying country, all of which takes place behind a veil of national security-imposed secrecy. Perfect conditions for corruption, which most often takes the form of bribery, undeclared conflicts of interest, the promise of post-employment, especially where the revolving door between the state and defense companies is common, and the offer of preferential business access which occurs regularly with the use of economic offsets in large arms deals. These various types of corruption, and importantly the efforts to conceal them, undermine the rule of law in buying and selling countries, distort the market, and pollute the business environment, the political process, and the functioning of the state. As Marika mentioned in her introduction, I've experienced this at first hand. I was privileged to serve as an ANC Member of Parliament under Nelson Mandela for the first few years of South Africa's democracy. Despite a commitment to reduce defence spending in favour of social spending, in late 1998, early 1999, South Africa entered into contracts for weapons that will ultimately cost the country around $10 billion for weapons we don't need and barely use today. At this time, our then president, Thabo Mbeki, claimed we did not have the fiscal resources to provide antiretroviral medication to the over 5 million South Africans living with HIV or AIDS. About $300 million in bribes were paid to senior politicians, officials, and to the ANC itself. The deal was concluded with a number of European governments and companies, most notably Britain's BAE and Sweden's Saab. In one particularly odious contract, the then-Defense Minister, Joe Modise changed the technical specifications to ensure that BAE Saab made a shortlist for the supply of jet trainers and fighters after they'd initially been excluded from the shortlist. When they were last on the shortlist that he insisted they be a part of because, amongst other reasons, their offering was two and a half times more expensive than the option preferred by the technical committee of the Air Force. The Minister decided two-thirds of the way through the procurement process to exclude cost as a procurement criteria on the single most expensive contract the democratic South Africa has signed. That still didn't put BAE Saab on top of the shortlist. So he amended another of the criteria, this time giving extra weight to the economic offsets offered. And then he gave only BAE and Saab, neither of the other two companies on the shortlist, the opportunity to increase their offset offer. Offsets, for those of you who don't know, are promises made by companies, in this case defense contractors, that for instance, for every hundred dollars that is spent on their weaponry, $112 or 120 or 150 or $200, will be invested in the buying country's economy. They are, in my opinion, so much economic sophistry, which is the reason why the World Trade Organization does not allow offset offers to be considered in the procurement of any other materials except for some reason weapons. Unsurprisingly, BAE and Saab were awarded the contracts. Joe Modisa left government to become chairman of a company that made tens of millions of rounds from the offset arrangements with shares that had effectively been bought for him. Now. Of course, it's possible to argue that the Anglo-Swedish bid won this contract in return for their support of the anti-apartheid struggle, or because they are important trading partners for South Africa. However, what I think is far more likely than either of those two explanations is that they won the contract, Despite the Air Force in South Africa saying publicly that they would only accept these jets and trainers if forced to do so by the politicians, because BAE and Saab paid £115 million in bribes, of which Joe Modisa and the ANC were major recipients. In a system set up and perfected by BAE's senior management, the bribes were paid through a labyrinthine maze of offshore financial companies, primarily located in the British Virgin Islands, and using overt and covert agents, including the Minister's political adviser and one John Breardenkamp, who, amongst other accolades, is on the EU and US financial sanctions lists, as a crony of Robert Mugabe's. To cover up the corruption in the arms deal, the ANC undermined the very institutions of democracy that many of its leaders and members had sacrificed so much to bring about. When I refused to stop an investigation that my committee in Parliament was undertaking, I was removed from the committee and then from Parliament the investigative bodies that were appointed to conduct what I describe as a neutered investigation were unconstitutionally called in by President Mbeki and told exactly who and what they could and could not investigate. There was a very clear criteria. If you were engaged in corruption but a political ally of the President you were not allowed to be investigated. If you had been engaged in corruption but were a political opponent of President Mbeki's, as was Jacob Zuma, you were open to investigation. Two anti-corruption agencies, one by Mbeki, one by Zuma, were closed down as they were insufficiently compliant and the highest prosecutorial authorities were later shown to have been complicit in taking political instructions. The final report of this neutered investigation was then edited by the Presidency before it was submitted to Parliament. The Presidency excised a paragraph criticizing Joe Modisa's undermining of the procurement process and instead described his adulteration of the formal criteria as a visionary approach. The deal and its cover-up were the point at which South Africa's nascent democracy lost its moral compass. Our current president, Jacob Zuma's financial advisor, Shabir Sheikh, shown here in the middle with his two brothers. The one brother on your right was head of procurement in the South African National Defense Force at the time of the deal. The other brother, Mosheik, was sent to Hamburg to ensure that a deal that was on the verge of being awarded to a Spanish company but after Tabu and Becky as deputy president had visited Hamburg and met with the German frigate consortium, decided to reopen the tender, it was Moshech on your left, who was sent to Hamburg as our consul general. A few months later, the German frigate consortium won the contract. Not only did Mosheik move on to greener pastures, the consulate in Hamburg was closed down. Today Sheikh heads South Africa's secret services when he was appointed amongst his tasks was the prevention of gun running into South Africa. Shabir Sheikh was eventually jailed for 15 years for corrupting Jacob Zuma in relation to the arms deal. He served less than two. After Zuma became president, Sheikh was released on legislation that was enacted to enable long-term detainees who were dying of a terminal illness to spend their last few days with their families. Today, almost two years after his release, he has been photographed playing golf, enjoying himself in nightclubs and has been accused of two assaults. Zuma himself was facing 783 counts of corruption, fraud and racketeering. The charges were controversially dropped 10 days before he was elected president by the acting attorney general who a few weeks after Zuma's election was made a high court judge. A few weeks ago, South Africa's Deputy President, Khalima Motlante, again lamented the fact that the ANC and government at all levels are drowning in corruption. The money spent on South Africa's arms deal could have built more than 2 million houses for poor South Africans or created more than 100,000 skilled jobs every year for 10 years in a country with an unemployment rate of almost 30%. Even more tragically, according to a study by Harvard University, 355,000 South Africans died avoidable deaths over a a five-and-a-half-year period after the arms deal was signed because the state claimed it could not afford to provide antiretroviral drugs. Even after overcoming Thabo Mbeki's shameful AIDS denialism, for every one rand spent on combating the AIDS pandemic, South Africa spent over seven Rand 60 on the arms deal. Meanwhile, 11 of the 24 trainer jets have ever been airborne, and more than half of the 26 fighter jets have been mothballed, because South Africa simply can't afford to fly them. Even according to the dubious figures produced by the government, less than half the promised jobs in the economic or industrial offsets have actually been created. Offset credits reflecting their practice all over the world were laughably awarded. To give you just one example, Saab was rewarded for a 15 million rand investment in a small holiday resort in the Eastern Cape of South Africa with literally tens of thousands of credits for every Swedish visitor to any part of South Africa including those who traveled to South Africa to watch the 2010 football World Cup. In Sweden after extraordinary work by local peace organizations, the local media and after Paul Holden and I flooded the prosecutor's office with documents just a few months ago, Saab having denied it for over 10 years, admitted that unauthorized commissions had been paid to Joe Modisa's political advisor, who we estimate received at least £20 million. Saab blamed BAE. Why? Because they knew the likelihood of BAE facing meaningful justice in the UK was about as likely as President Zuma being tried for corruption in South Africa. In the latter stages of Tony Blair's ultimately ignominious premiership, the United Kingdom's serious fraud office was effectively forced by Tony Blair's Attorney General, under pressure from the Prime Minister himself, to halt an investigation into the biggest and most corrupt arms deal in history. The Al-Yamama deal, which, according to British police sources, saw six billion pounds of commissions paid. And the Saudi ambassador to the U.S., Prince Bandar bin Sultan, whose father was the Saudi defense minister at the time, also received an Airbus as a birthday gift from BAE Systems. The Airbus was painted in the colors of his favorite American football team, the Dallas Cowboys. And this was just in case the one billion pounds that flowed through Prince Bandar's bank accounts, held in Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C., opposite the White House, was not sufficient. Mark Thatcher's tidy earnings on the deal, which have been put at around 12 million pounds, have resulted in the deal being referred to as Who's Your Mama? After the UK government's cowardly cover-up on the Al Yamamai deal, the serious fraud office continued to investigate BAE systems for corruption in deals not only in South Africa but also Tanzania, the Czech Republic and Hungary. Deals in Romania, Yemen and Qatar had also been looked into. The SFO appeared to be getting tough with the company which oftentimes appears to be little more than an extension of the Ministry of Defense. When anti-corruption researcher Sue Hawley and I were invited to meet with the SFO's director, Richard Alderman, in in early 2011, he told us that the company had rejected the offer that he'd recently made to them, which would have involved them paying a fine of hundreds of millions of pounds and an admission of guilt on at least one count of corruption. He claimed defiantly that he would not return to the table with the company anymore, but would seek permission to charge the company. Three days later, on Friday, the 5th of February this year, I was back at the SFO offices. I was giving another formal witness statement to the team investigating the South African deal. As I was leaving, after an interview of over three hours, the investigators started to hear that the Serious Fraud Office had settled with BAE, fining them £500,000 for accounting irregularities in relation to the corrupt deal in Tanzania, with £29 million in reparations to the country due as well. In addition, the SFO agreed to drop investigations into the four other corrupt deals, and most extraordinary of all, agreed not to allege corruption on the part of the company when investigating third parties for a period of 10 years. When settling with the United States Departments of Justice and State, however, BAE was forced to admit paying unauthorized commissions on all of these deals and our Yamama and was fined a record for a British company of $479 million. So the company admitted to paying unauthorized commissions to the US authorities and their partner Saab admitted that unauthorized commissions had been paid to a key political operative on the South African deal. But in the UK the investigating team who knew nothing about the settlement who hadn't even been consulted, still claimed they had a very strong case against the company. But the SFO leadership exonerated the company, gave them the financial equivalent of a tap on the knuckles, and suggested they might have got a few numbers mixed up in Tanzania. The decision caused a leading South African opposition politician recently elected the mayor of Cape Town to pronounce that the UK had lost the moral authority to talk about good governance and fighting corruption. I quote Patricia DeLille, They are no better than any of the rogue leaders in Africa who have used funds from bribes and arms deals to stay in power. Such decisions are, in my opinion, an affront to the British justice system And undermine the reputation of British business and its government at the very same time that British taxpayers continue to subsidize the country's arms industry in times of economic hardship. Sadly, this sort of outcome is only too common. In Germany, the company that paid bribes amounting to more than $25 million, to, amongst others, the head of procurement in the SADF, Chippy Sheikh, who we saw with his brothers earlier, and then claimed the payments in a tax rebate after it had become illegal to do so, were investigated, but then quietly paid a fine in Germany in relation to tax irregularities. Nothing was made public about the bribes that had led to the infraction. In France, on the notorious Angola Gate saga, all the defendants who were, find, who were found guilty of corruption or influence peddling were ultimately either found not guilty or had their sentences halved. This included a former government minister, Charles Pasqua, whose acquittal was the seventh time he'd been acquitted on serious charges relating to corruption or other serious crimes. But South Africa and Angola are just indicative examples of what happens around the world in the trading of weapons. And this, might I remind you, is the formal government to government trade in arms, supposedly the cleaner of the trades. The US weapons procurement system can only be described as legalised bribery, in which the iron tri- triangle of senior Pentagon officials, lawmakers, and defence contractors and their lobbyists continue to perpetuate inordinately expensive weapon systems that are inappropriate to the country's defence needs, seldom perform as promised, and are delivered years, sometimes decades late. The Pentagon officials who make these decisions have to keep the contractors sweet. In 2010 alone, 84% of retiring U.S. generals found employment in senior, high-paying positions with the country's leading defense contractors. Lawmakers approved these projects in return for generous campaign funds and promises of jobs for their district albeit jobs that cost up to seven times the cost of equivalent jobs in other, arguably more productive, manufacturing sectors. And the defence companies themselves, well, they just laugh all the way to the bank, wrapping themselves in the flag en route. How else could one explain the folly that is the F-35, the most expensive jet fighter ever built, The current estimate of $380 billion for this plane is expected to increase by at least 30%. It's a jet that might have been useful during the Cold War, but is irrelevant today. One former Pentagon aerospace engineer described the F-35, and excuse my language, as a total piece of crap. Far worse than the plane it's replacing. And checks and balances on this? Well, the Pentagon, the single biggest spending department in the United States government, has not been audited for over two decades. They literally don't know if they've paid contractors once, twice, three times, or not at all. Having somehow already missed the deadline of 2014 in 2011, they now report to Congress that they think they might be audit-ready by 2017. No one is holding their breath. This extraordinary state of affairs not only costs billions of dollars, but impacts the lives of millions of people in conflict zones and way beyond those zones. A few years ago, A 21-year-old from Miami Beach, Florida, with a bit of a drug habit, and a business partner who was a qualified monsieur, and who was already on a U.S. State Department arms trading watch list, was awarded a $300 million contract by the U.S. Department of Defense to provide the Afghan security forces with their ammunition needs. Due diligence was carried out for the Department of Defense on Ephraim de Veroli. The man who undertook the due diligence just happened to have a significant financial stake in de Veroli's company. Young Ephraim, learning from his Israeli uncle arms dealer, went where he could find the ammo cheapest, Albania, where he did a deal with the head of the state weapons agency and the Minister of Defense, amongst others. They built a prefabricated factory in a populated village outside Tirana where 40-year-old Chinese and Albanian ammunition was cleaned. Any made-in-China insignia was filed off. It was then repackaged and sent to Afghanistan. There were no safety standards of any sort in the factory. Empty shells, TNT, gunpowder, and other fatal detritus was bulldozed into a nearby field or stored in plastic bags on the shop floor. In March of 2008, the factory exploded, destroying over 350 houses in the surrounding village, killing 26 entirely innocent people including three generations of one family who unfortunately lived in the house next to the factory and the seven-year-old boy, Erison Derdash. Diveroli was eventually given a light light prison sentence after some of his ammunition had exploded while being shot in Afghanistan for for trading in Chinese ammunition which is a crime in the United States. His confiscated assets were returned to him. He never had to pay back the advance that the US Department of Defense had already paid him. No politician or senior government official has even faced charges in Albania. The defense minister stepped down for a few months before being reappointed to cabinet by the same prime minister as minister for the environment. This is how the illicit trade in weapons, which fuels and prolongs conflicts across the globe, often through the sale of light weapons and ammunition, intersects with and feeds off the formal trade. The use of dealers such as Divoroli, Breedenkamp, Heinrich Thome or Henri Thome when he's doing business in Israel and who by many is regarded as the rising prince of the shadow world, who was also involved in the Albanian scam, and many, many others. Their use by large companies and governments is commonplace. And nowhere has this been more apparent than in the arms trading jamboree that is the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was fortunate, although I'm not sure fortunate is the right word, to interview for the first time in his long career a grandee of the shadow world. Paul Holden had picked up in the report of a commission of inquiry in South Africa, the name of a man who a South African arms official described as the scariest human being he'd ever met. So began a long and often frustrating search for Paul, Barnaby and I, for Joe de Hofsepian. Eventually, we found him in an unlikely place for a Lebanese-Armenian arms dealer in his late 70s, on Facebook. I received a curt response from Joe to my initial email, requesting an interview. It read, What's in it for me? I have never got anything for nothing in my life, nor do I give anything for nothing. We didn't have a lot to offer him, so I suggested the opportunity to respond to claims made about him in the South African inquiry and others, to which he answered, As far as having the opportunity to respond to any claims, I am not concerned. My caravan drives through in spite of the barking dogs. I peppered him with emails about how everyone I spoke to told me he knows more about the arms trade than anyone else alive. After months of this, I was sitting in my little office in Belsize Park when I received a call on my mobile phone. A gruff, what to me sounded like a Germanic voice, said, Hofseppian here. I'll be at my office in Amman, Jordan on Sunday. Come and have a chat. (laughs) So off I went. Sitting on the plane, I suddenly thought to myself, although I never admitted this to my wife, what am I doing? (laughs) What happens if this is a setup that a few of the arms dealers I've spoken to have decided enough is enough? So I got to my hotel in Amman, and I went up to a very bemused concierge. And I said to him, I have a meeting with someone I haven't met before. I'm a little concerned. Could you give me your mobile phone number, and I will text you every half an hour? If you don't hear from me in, say, one hour could you please call me on my number? And if I don't answer, would it be possible to send somebody to this address I'm going to? I learned a lot from the experience about how it's better to be cautious and sensible about these things rather than just excited at the prospects of talking to someone who'd never been interviewed and who'd spent the last four decades involved in some of the most awful arms deals. He spent hours, hours, regaling me with stories of his career, often contradictory, always fascinating. He'd begun his career with a German company called Merex, formed by a few former senior Nazi officers just after the conclusion of the Second World War, including one Gerhard Mertens, who in the 1950s, I suppose, could best be described as a neo-Nazi and a crook. Helped along by German and American intelligence, Merix undertook a wide array of grey and black deals around the world. Dorof Sepien, who in his late teens, his father was a foreign legionnaire, was working in a hunting gun store in Germany. was taken under his wing by Mertens and taught the trade in, as Mertens called them, proper weapons. However, de Hofsepian soon discovered that there is little honor amongst arms dealers. Mertens cheated him, shopped him to the German and Swiss authorities, tried to do him out of a million dollars he was owed, and generally behaved as you would expect an arms dealer to. But Mertens did business with anyone who could pay. From Egypt's King Farouk to the man who ousted him in a coup, Nasser. The Americans, including involvement in the Iran-Contra debacle, perhaps the most cynical of all arms deals. India and Pakistan, at the same time, while they were in conflict with each other. One of Mrs. Thatcher's favourites, Augusto Pinochet, with the assistance, I should add, of the man known as the Butcher of Lyon, Klaus Barbie. And the list was completed by Saddam Hussein and the People's Republic of China. When Mertens broke laws, German and U.S. military intelligence protected him, for a while at least. Eventually, his double-dealing, deceit, and financial incompetence caught up with him. De Hovsepian had meanwhile spread his wings beyond the merton's nest, doing business for himself in Saudi Arabia, the Balkans, and South Africa. He admitted to me, breaking arms embargoes far and wide, suggesting that what an arms embargo did was push up the price that people like him could charge. He happily broke the arms embargo, against apartheid South Africa. It was while sourcing weapons to break an embargo in force in the Balkans that he made contact with the South African State Arms Agency. And when I asked him about the claim made by one of the South African officials that he was one of the scariest human beings he ever met, Dohovsepien stood up behind his large desk. This is a man of about 6 foot 4 to my 5 foot something, wearing a Stetson inside his office and he said I put a gun to his head and told him I was going to kill him I continued taking notes (laughs) he then laughed and said what I didn't tell him is that I'm a pacifist I just buy and sell this stuff I don't use it myself I assumed that de Hofsepien would be firmly entrenched in the depths of the shadow world, but at one point in our conversation, he proudly produced his ID tags as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Defense and a major U.S. weapons producer in Iraq and Afghanistan. He also showed me his recent contractor ID for USAID, the aid department of the U.S. government in Liberia. Where the Merrick's network had made hay during the regime of Charles Taylor. One dealer in particular did well in Liberia. That's Le- that is um, Dehovsepian in his Bon office. He has about eight offices around the world. Leonid Minin is a Ukrainian Israeli with links to the Odessa mafia. On one occasion, he flew his private plane. Nabak the back one eleven, 11 still with the insignia of the Seattle Sonics basketball team from which he'd bought it, into Monrovia in December of 1998, loaded with 68 tons of ammunition and weapons. The weapons were quickly ferried across the border to the Taylor-supported RUF rebels in Sierra Leone, waiting for the weaponry with the RUF's brutal young fighters, many with an incision in their heads into which amphetamines or crack cocaine had been pushed and bandaged. Once Minin's weapons arrived, they launched a brutal attack known as Operation No Living Thing. In less than two weeks, 6,000 innocent people were murdered. Tens of thousands were injured, many maimed for life. Women and young girls were brutally and repeatedly raped over 500 buildings were destroyed by fire and ransacking leaving a shell of a city. The RUF fighters were issued with Hessian bags before they went into this particular battle. It was their signature to cut off the hands of their opponents. But their leaders had heard that international aid agencies were sewing these hands back on. So for this particular assault They were instructed not only to cut off the hands, but to bring them back with them. Minin was arrested for drug offences just outside Milan, surrounded by four prostitutes, with cocaine and rough diamonds scattered on the floor, a pornographic film flickering on the wall behind him. Those who arrested him, who described him as looking like a very pale, beached whale, were amazed to discover literally thousands of pages documenting Minin's arms deals. A massive dossier of evidence was built against him for illegal arms trafficking. In the lead-up to his trial, Minin fired four different lawyers. However, he appealed against his pre-trial detention and won his case. A higher court in Italy arguing that the country had no jurisdiction over Minin or his crimes. This, despite the facts that Minin had been a resident of Italy for many years and had been married to an Italian woman for 14 years. Crucially, I was told in the days leading up to his successful appeal that Minin's legal team had been bolstered by the arrival of a posse of high-powered lawyers from one of Italy's leading and largest arms companies. His place in Taylor's circle was taken by Victor Bout, or Boot some prefer, the Russian currently on trial in New York for illicit arms dealing. What is interesting about Bout is not so much the sobriquet of the merchant of death, but rather the reality that he provided transport and logistical services for the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, despite an Interpol warrant for his arrest, which the Americans chose to ignore until it suited them. Africa has suffered more than most the devastating effects of the intertwined legal and illegal trade in arms. The duplicity, corruption, and double standards of not just the myriad arms dealers who have swarmed the continent, but also the large weapons makers and their supportive governments, including prominently the government of the United Kingdom, have known few bounds. The brutal demise of the odious and vicious Muammar Gaddafi in Libya symbolized these double standards. Expressing his pride at Britain's role in the dictator's overthrow I wonder what David Cameron felt about the 120 million pounds of weapons the UK had sold the dictator since 2005 along with other European powers in Russia. It was ironic that NATO forces had to destroy the weaponry that their member states had manufactured for the dictator. Weapons which helped keep him in power. And today those weapons which have not been destroyed are lying in unguarded warehouses with a number of them including surface-to-air missiles having already found their way onto the world's black markets. This is blowback, the unintended consequences that are all too common to the global trade in arms. In conclusion, and very briefly, what is to be done? National laws, regional and international agreements need to be far stronger and more meaningfully enforced. The EU common position which had just come into force as the South African deal was signed violated was violated in at least two articles by the South African deal. It was irrelevant. It didn't apply to South Africa. It doesn't apply to government-to-government deals. Policing, investigations and prosecutions need to match the global nature of the trade and its protagonists. Nationally, greater transparency and accountability, especially around the use of offshore jurisdictions, middlemen and offsets is required. More graded and serious penalties are required for violations both to companies, however large, and senior individuals. A strong international arms trade treaty with serious anti-corruption measures and significant enforcement capability could be a huge step in the right direction but I fear the tawdry nature of global politics might result in a treaty too weak to make a significant difference. In conclusion, when I asked the father of Erison durdash the seven-year-old boy who died while cycling near the factory outside Tirana in Albania, how it felt to live in the village in which his son and 25 others were killed, he replied, It is like living every minute of every day in a cemetery. He doesn't have the means to move. Sadly, in the unstable world in which we exist, an arms trade of some sort is necessary. But I would argue that without far greater transparency, meaningful regulation and enforcement of the law, In relation to this industry, the trade in weapons will continue to make the world a poorer place, a less democratic place, a more corrupt place, and ironically, a more dangerous place. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very, very much, Andrew. And um, I said at the beginning, often after Andrew speaks, there's a sort of quiet spirit that descends on the audience. And uh, I'm sure you felt it at various points uh, during during Andrew's talks. And I'm also sure you're bursting with many questions to ask. So please put up your hand if you have a question. And we have a microphone. There's one right here at the top. Um, Maybe we'll take three questions and then... Yeah. Can we... And and if
1: people could just give their names, so I can respond directly to their question. Okay,
0: we have one up up here. Thank you.
2: Um, Hello. Yes. Um, Tom Burgess with the Financial Times, most recently in um, West Africa and before that in Joburg and East Africa. Uh, Thanks, Andrew, for for that talk and for all your tremendous efforts over the years in this field. um, If I may, a couple of points to lead to a question. It's about... um, the role of natural resources in all of this. Um, a few of the characters and the institutions you, you touch on um, are well known for their role in the in the trade in, the, especially African natural resources. Often, the often the um, informal trade. People like you mentioned, Braden Camp. I see Dan Gertler pops up in the book. We've got Riggs, Bank, uh, uh, Thatcher Jr. I mean, these people are all yeah. are all known in the, in that circle as well. And then. Um, Alongside that, if, if we look, as you do in the book and as you have before, at structures like the um, the corrupt structures used in Tanzania by, by BAE, they very closely resemble the corrupt structures that have come to light in, say, um, the Halliburton case in Nigeria and other, and other uh, big corruption cases. And then, uh, thirdly and finally, of course, the countries that have seen the most spectacular um, uh, suspect arm deals: Angola, Liberia, uh, South Africa, Tanzania. These these are all predominantly resource uh, countries where big Western mining companies have big interests. So my question is: Do you, do you think we should perhaps be looking at at um, the arms trade and the resources trade uh, as part of one complex, if you like, going a little bit beyond the the centre of the book, maybe? But yeah. I'd love to know what you thought about that. Thank you. Uh,
0: we had one over here.
3: Um, Andrew, if you could comment on... Um... Sorry, could you just give your... Sorry, my name is Michelle Small, Thanks. and uh, I'm from King's College, London. Um, if you could comment on what do you believe the limitations are or the possibilities for success of President Jacob Zuma reopening the arms deal inquiry uh-huh. in South Africa... Um, given that he's both implicated in the corruption and that he sets the terms of reference um, and what that means on a national and international scale.
0: Thank you. And we had one question over here. Yes, please.
4: Andrew, a great talk. Could you uh, also Sorry, let people you know, I, it's uh, um, I wonder whether you could tell people also how they can get involved afterwards. I mean, you've done uh, a great talk and you've brought up some very important issues and fired up some um, big emotions here. But afterwards, it would be useful to know how the audience can in some way uh, get involved with uh, trying to combat uh, this issue.
0: Thank you. Um, Just before Andrew answers, can you put up your hand if you have a question so we can put the mics in position? Okay, we have one over here and then two over there. Okay, great. Do you want to take the first round?
1: Um, Tom, in terms of, of your question, I mean, it's, it, it's an extremely valid point. Can, can you hear me up there? Okay. Um, and I've been doing a lot of work with, for instance, um, Resource Watch, who, who have done some incredible work on natural resources, on the whole um, publish what you pay campaign, which I would very much like to see a, applied to the arms sector, where, for instance, middlemen and agents working in the natural resources sector, but also involved in the weapons sector, um, were compelled to reveal... um, Well, the companies involved, as well as the middlemen, were compelled to reveal what was being paid to middlemen, what it was being paid for, because that's obviously where a lot of of the bribes take place. Also, another obvious area of of overlap where bribery is rampant is the whole area of offsets um, that I mentioned. I suppose part of the motivation for doing this book was not only my own experience in South Africa, where many people in South Africa, where I spent a long time with my first book, talking about the book, talking about corruption, said to me, that's fine, we hear what you're saying about those who've been corrupted, which unfortunately includes some of our own leaders. What about the corruptors? Um, and another part of the motivation was wanting to focus on it. A lot of work is being done on natural resources Again, very important work, very well done by a wide range of organizations. And the weapons dimension of it had almost been forgotten. You know, it's been many decades since the last comprehensive narrative account of the global arms trade was published, Anthony Sampson's The Arms Bazaar, the first edition of which was published as long ago as 1979. And the reason for that, as Joe and others have discovered, is often legal fears amongst publishers. I wanted to put back on the political agenda the issue of the trade in conventional arms. Campaign Against the Arms Trade and a number of other um, activist organizations have been doing sterling work for years and years. But it's fallen off a lot of the main political debate. That in no way should undercut the fact that there are so many similarities, as you mentioned, the use of of certain financial systems, um, the use even of the same middlemen. There's a great American journalist, Ken Silverstein, who did the very early work on the Merix network that I mentioned, um, who is at the moment also an OSI fellow doing work particularly on middlemen who operate in both the natural resources and the arms trade. Um, so I think there is hopefully, if if the trade in arms gets the sort of profile and exposure that I believe it needs to get, there is hopefully going to be a lot more of this sort of integrated work um, because there are so many similarities. Um, in terms, Michelle, of your questions, um, just for those of you who might not follow South Africa that closely, um, a few weeks ago, on the day that his lawyers were supposed to um, submit um, replying papers to South Africa's constitutional court in an action brought by a very courageous arms trade activist, Terry Crawford Brown, demanding a judicial commission of inquiry from the president on the South African arms deal. That same day, and his lawyers had been avoiding filing these papers for six, maybe nine months, um, President Zuma announced that he would appoint a commission of inquiry. He has appointed three judges who will head the commission, although one of them has already decided to step down for reasons that remain unclear. He, just a few days ago, issued the um, terms of reference for the inquiry, and the terms of reference, I think, are appropriately broad. They um, they exclude certain elements that we, as in Paul Holden, who has written extensively on the South African deal, myself and others who work on this. Um, most importantly, the Commission's interim and final reports go first to the President. And... Um, myself and others will be writing both to the President and to the Commissioners to suggest that if the Commission is to have any integrity, the reports would need to be made public at the same point that they go to the President, given that the President is one of the subjects of the inquiry, and given that in the previous investigation, as I mentioned, um, Thabo Mbeki's presidency actually edited the investigators' report before submitting it to Parliament. So those are the things that concern me. I think the other concern is that we've seen, after over a decade of trying to get to the truth of the South African deal, we have seen massive political interference in every attempt to get to that truth. And that is obviously the great danger with this commission of inquiry. However, I hope that the judges who who ultimately run it have the personal integrity and courage to examine all aspects of the deal, including the role of the current and former president, including the role of ANC corruption in the deal, and including the role of all the international companies and their governments. But at the same time, being a realist, after over a decade, I have very serious reservations. And finally, Shaman, who who I should just mention, has been involved in developing a website that in its first very basic form will go live tonight, which is a a website called theshadowworld.com on which you can see some of the documents on which um, a lot of the information in the book is based, um, on which there will be a practical manual for arms trade activists, hopefully within about six months um, and on which there will also be a lot of other information about activities around the arms trade Um, it's a very good question about how people can get involved I think I've I've mentioned a number of extremely important organisations who as with all NGOs and especially the activist organisations are always struggling for funds are always struggling for person power because I think that the most crucial thing if we are going to see changes in the way the arms trade is run globally is not even so much the institutions treaties regulations it is something more basic than that political will and unfortunately I know of very few politicians in today's world who have stood up against the systemic power of the arms trade. And unless we, as ordinary citizens and taxpayers, in whose name and with whose money this trade is being conducted, are prepared to hit politicians where it hurts, which is with our votes. We will see little change. So, I think there are enormous opportunities for involvement, and I hope that on the website we will have many links to organizations you could work with very practically, but never lose sight of the most important area in which we can have impact. Thank you. We
0: had two questions over there, so maybe start at the top and then we go.
3: Uh, John Strafford, um, you said that uh, you did an article about the Liam Fox affair. Um, what did you put in the article?
1: Just wait so you don't. <laughs> Sorry, could you just repeat your name? I heard the question. John Strafford. Thank you, John. Uh,
0: there's a second question down the same row, please.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, Andrew. Alan Baccarese, I'm a, a lawyer many years spent. Uh, years as a senior prosecutor involved in the anti-corruption uh, fight, so I know Andrew's worked very well. Uh, Andrew is always uh, very uh, profoundly illuminating, profoundly interesting, uh, profoundly depressing as well. Um, can you give us any glimmer of hope of uh, what might lie in the future, particularly in the weeks in which, as you say, Victor Bout is being prosecuted before the, the New York uh, courts, which we probably thought would never happen in our lifetime, and also the fact that... Um, Last week, 170, 180 countries assembled at the Conference of States Parties in Marrakech to uh, recommit their futures to a new, um, bright future of anti-corruption initiatives and legislation in Marrakech, in uh, Morocco. And so there seems to be at least some sort of political will there. Uh, But given uh, the subject of uh, tonight's talk, can you Mm. give us any sort of hope of any sort of uh, bright spots on the horizon? Thank you.
0: Yeah,
2: we have a question
4: right here. Yes, uh, thank you very much. I'd perhaps like to withhold my name. Maybe sure. I could call myself Peter, but I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll sure. give you my real name Absolutely. later. Um, my question is really leading on from uh, the last few questions, and uh, particularly, I think, in the context of Mr Tom Burgess's comments, mm. which I really think cannot be overestimated. Mm. Um, stressed about this link Um, and I'll explain why in a minute Um, what are the realistic chances of bringing the ex-Soviet countries particularly Russia and above all China Uh on board on this because they are now close to buying and I'm not suggesting corruption but just commercial influence Uh on a much wider level within western countries this, that question is partly based on um, my own experiences working as an EU law enforcement officer with Ukrainian law enforcement agencies in Kiev and Odessa. And can I just add that um, your comments about um, Leonid Minin, Victor Bout, and the Odessa Mafia, um, well... When you look at what was done by Western agencies to negotiate on those and cooperate, it it, it is, frankly, it would drive somebody to heart attacks and ulcers. And that's not necessarily entirely a criticism of the host countries. It's a criticism of Western approaches. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. Shall I take those three too? Um, I'll try and be as quick as possible. I never got to write the article on Liam Fox, but hopefully I will in the not too distant future, um, because my feelings on the matter were simply that what was being described in the media, and I have no inside knowledge um, of any of the individuals or entities involved. That's actually not quite true. There's one entity that I have some knowledge of that hasn't been in the media, um, but, but generally I don't, broadly speaking. Um, is that this had all the hallmarks of how inappropriate influence is brought to bear between private for-profit activities and state responsibilities. And it was Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld during the Bush Jr. administration, of whom a senior lieutenant colonel in the Pentagon remarked, They have absolutely no idea of the distinction between the private and the public. Which is why, while they were in office, the shares that they held in blind trusts, the delayed payments that were made to them from companies like Halliburton and a variety of other defence contractors, they made tens of millions of dollars out of the very policies that they were instituting as elected representatives of the U.S. government. And I saw all the hallmarks of this on a more minor scale in the Fox-Werity link. Here was somebody who clearly made his living providing access and advice to, amongst others, defense companies. And he did that on the basis that he was great mates and according to his business cards as we know an advisor to the said minister he sat in on very sensitive meetings with very senior politicians from other countries and his friend and the most extraordinary thing is this has all the hallmarks of inappropriate influence and corruption that takes place all over the world in this industry But the word corruption was never mentioned in relation to it. Liam Fox made countless statements. He'd make one. The next day, the media, and all praise to them, including The Guardian, who did some incredible work on this story, would refute whatever he'd said, would expose it as lies. No, he wasn't on the trip with me. And then we would see the pictures and the videos, of Mr. Werity a few paces behind his friend who he was advising. Oh, no, he didn't sit in on any meetings with important officials. And then we would see the pictures and the videos and we would hear from the countries concerned that, oh, in fact, he did sit in on meetings with defense ministers, with prime ministers. How can this man a representative of the UK government get away with lying day after day after day and not only is he still a member of Parliament but in the weekend press he spoke of his hopes of returning to government as soon as possible I find it extraordinary and we all treat it so politely this is no different to what goes on in South Africa to what goes on in South Asia and parts of Latin America It maybe has a more sophisticated veneer, but that's it. Eva Jolie, one of the most famous anti-corruption campaigners and possibly a candidate for the Green Party in the French presidential elections, once described the square mile of the city of London as the money laundering capital of the world. And my own feeling is, having lived in a very politicized society like South Africa during a remarkable transition, and that country remains a far better place, regardless of all the problems that I highlighted, than it ever was before 1994. How apathetic people are in this country about these sorts of matters. It really astonishes me. So hopefully I'll get the opportunity to write the Liam Fox article in the not-too-distant future. In terms of, of Alan's comment, and I should um, to reveal allegiances here, Alan has played an extremely important role, both in his prosecutorial incarnation, but also in his asset recovery work for the Basel Institute of Governance, where he, he recently left. Um, and I'm not sure, Alan, whether you're stalking me or I'm stalking you, but We've spoken often on platforms together over the last 18 months or so where I do tend to depress people a little bit. I do tend to have the cynical outlook of a former politician or what Al Gore describes as a recovering politician. (laughs) And and Alan tries to keep me um, on the path of of hope. Um, And yes, of course there is hope. You know The fact that there is a South African Commission of Inquiry, even though President Zuma was forced into it, not only by the Constitutional Court, but also by political pressures, the ANC Youth League, led by the odious Mr. Malama, who some of you might have heard of, um, threatened that if Mr. Malama, who is facing disciplinary proceedings with the ANC, is either expelled from the party or faces any sort of meaningful punishment, they will divulge all the details of corruption in the South African arms deal. So what Zuma is also doing is marginalizing the potential for the arms deal to be used as he seeks re-election as ANC president, an event that will take place late next year. But there is a commission of inquiry, and the terms of reference could have been a lot worse. Victor Bout is on trial in New York, I just hope, that all of his activities, including for the U.S. government, amongst others, are revealed in court. And I also hope that even if he is convicted, which I personally believe he should be, that people bear in mind his links to the formal trade and how much more impact the formal trade has, not just on conflict, but also in the way that we are governed wherever we may live. And, of course, there was Marrakech. But I think, Alan, the one thing that I would say is there is a difference between political words and political will. And our responsibility as citizens, and I sometimes feel that I'm more politically engaged since I left parliament as an MP than I ever was as a member of parliament, is to take these responsibilities of citizenship very seriously and to ensure that, for instance, when our governments sign these common positions, these multilateral agreements, these treaties that they do take them seriously and I do think unfortunately regardless of what happened in Marrakesh that we're still a long way from seeing that becoming the norm and that should be our goal finally um, Peter um, I often wonder in the last 10 years or so how many people I've met whose actual names I don't know and I think Probably at least half of them. But, but thank you for making the points. Um, I just want to make one quick point on that. What are the chances of bringing Russia and China on board in all of this? I'll talk specifically of, of the arms trade treaty. Um, it seems to me, and I'm not as close to it as, as some other people in the room, but it seems to me that the United States is very keen to have Russia and China sign an international arms trade treaty which is due to be signed in the UN uh, mid-next year although it is possible that it would be delayed. My real concern is that to get Russia, China and some other states I mean the obvious ones like North Korea Zimbabwe etc but even others who have recently grown their defense industries significantly like Brazil possibly even India who might only sign up to a very weak treaty And my concern is that if it is a weak treaty, what it will serve to do is to give some legitimacy, some veneer of respectability to the current status quo. And what we really need is a treaty that makes absolutely clear that the current status quo is unacceptable. And that while, of course, national security and commercial confidentiality are important, and that certain aspects of these deals have to remain confidential for those reasons, a huge amount of activity that is simple criminality is being hidden behind that same veil of secrecy. And for the ATT to be a really meaningful document, I believe it will have to address that aspect of the trade in arms.
0: Thank you very much for all your questions. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up and and come to a close. I just want to make a very quick announcement. Um, Copies of The Shadow Worlds will be sold just outside the theater, and Andrew will stay here on stage and sign copies if you want to have your copy signed. Andrew, I can only wrap up the evening really by by quoting uh, a remark from the audience. It was an evening that was profoundly illuminating, profoundly interesting, and profoundly depressing. And and I would add to that profoundly important. So thank you very much, Andrew Feinstein, for being with us.